Shall we begin? It's 12.06 on my on my. Yeah, mind. let's go ahead and get started. So first off, as always, thank you guys for joining us on this lovely Thursday as we dive through the final section of this chapter. Uh, and we head through Anti-Oedipus. Uh, I'm going to be doing less talking today uh, because I have a feeling that fell out. My tongue hurts like hell and it's swelling up and I'm going to sound like an idiot here very soon if I can talk at all. So uh, I'm going to try to keep it short. Uh, just a handful of housekeeping to start us off. We are still needing so many, many, many more volunteers. Uh, we are starting to have a lot more activity on the server, which is always a good thing. The curse that it comes with is we need a lot more people helping run stuff and keep things sort of organized and not slowly falling apart into chaos. So please uh, hit us up if you're interested in doing any sort of volunteering, modding, running chats, uh, just basically being a... A, a filter ban so you can just delete messages whatever it might be we are up for the help uh for sure so with that i will pass it over to craig in the group and uh thank you craig very much for taking on a little bit more today oh uh, sure um so anyway uh first of all we should pat ourselves in the back we've made it through the entirety of chapter one if you've uh done the reading for today um I guess uh, I'll start the the reading today with just kind of a recap in five or s about four or five statements that I've made here that will be important to understanding what's happening in the chapter. It kind of covers everything that we've looked at in in chapter one here. Um, and it goes like this. So I, I formulated them as questions and these questions have a, a sort of logical sequence. So the first question is, how do we best characterize Deleuze and Guattari's metaphysics? It is an uh, ontology of flows and breaks. In other words, uh, desiring machines, right? What is meant by flows and breaks? A flow is a localizable, and I, there's a weird word that I chose, but a localizable continuity of matter or energy which moves from one pole to another. A break is an interruption of a flow which both cuts and connects flows. And if you remember, uh, flows are everywhere, right? Uh, it's the, the mouth uh, moving to the mother's breast to, get, to extract the flow of milk. It's the waste that we flush down the toilet that goes through the sewer pipe and then goes to the sanitation plant. And then some of that uh, water gets recycled as potable drinking water. Those are flows. And they encounter a series of breaks in their transition into to new flows. Um, what are the nature of these poles? Uh, they are partial objects, as initially theorized by Melanie Klein. Flows traverse a series of partial objects to construct desiring machines. Partial objects define the coordinates of flows and breaks. Partial objects are irreducible to global objects, such as individuals, in the sort of Cartesian sense of the word, uh, or the bourgeois sense of the word, um, or other figures derived from idealist metaphysics, Oedipus gods, races, genders, nations, and so forth. Um, not that all of those things uh, are derivatives, uh, strictly deriv derivatives of idealist metaphysics, but I hope you get the point. Uh, series of partial objects connect with categorical conceptions normally ascribed to global objects. What does that mean? Um, there are things like global objects out, out there. There are parents, right? There are things, uh, there are individuals, there are nations. However, these objects function in the periphery of desiring machines for Deleuze and Gattari, or to use another, another description, um, they function alongside of them. In short, desiring machines remain irreducible to forms of synthetic con conjunction. 
although those conjunctions do happen. And then finally, um, the one thing that we'll look at today is Deleuze and Guattari uh, valorizing children in their metaphysics. Children play and act in ways which express the manifold potentiality of uh, the body without organs. Children's uh, traversing of various milieus and their acts of pretending are irreducible to the figure of Oedipus. Children who are clinical subjects in the many case studies reviewed by Deleuze and Gattari in preparing their theory seem to express trepidation or a sense of dislocation when analysts like Klein and others force them into the Oedipal mold. And that's basically how this chapter is going to conclude today. And so those are just kind of my opening comments. Um, we'll start with the first paragraph. And then after that, um, we'll have some of the admins and anybody else who'd like to speak. Go ahead and speak. So without further ado, we're on page 42 in the actual reading in the PDF. That's page 65, part six, the whole in its parts. In desiring machines, everything functions at the same time. But amid hiatuses and ruptures, breakdowns and failures, stalling and short circuits, distances and fragmentations within a sum that never succeeds in bringing its various parts together so as to form a whole. That is because the breaks in the process are productive and there are reassemblies in and of themselves. Disjunctions, by the very fact that they are disjunctions, are inclusive. Even consumptions are transitions, processes of becoming and returns. Maurice Blanchot has found a way to pose the problem in the most rigorous terms, at the level of the literary machine, how to produce, how to think about fragments whose sole relationship is sheer difference, fragments that are related to one another only in that each one of them is different, without having recourse either to any sort of original totality not even one that has been lost, or to a subsequent totality that may not yet have come about. It is only the category of multiplicity used as a substantive and going beyond both the one and the many. Very interesting line there. Beyond the uh, predicative relation of the one and the many that can account for desiring production. Desiring production is pure multiplicity. That is to say, an affirmation that is irreducible to any sort of unity. Uh, so with that said, I would like to turn it over to any other admins or users who, who want to uh, offer some commentary on my notes and maybe this first paragraph. Well, I'd just like to mention that, uh, you know, as we go through this, I'll probably be saying over and over, that uh, this is kind of like, a, um, it's about uh, what Bataille calls the uh, general economy versus the restricted economy. And, and, and I, what I see in this, in this chapter is a lot of uh, descriptions of what the general economy are like. And the general economy, the difference between a, a general economy and a restricted economy is a restricted economy is a system which is both unified and totalized. But a general economy is, I call it a meta system, which is detotalized and uh, uh, disunified. The one example that they give, uh, Dulles and Gattari anyway, that, that corresponds with um, what you're describing is the image of the child. Uh, in the first days of its life, it's it's functioning 
I mean, literally functioning just to survive. And it has not yet been inscribed into the sort of particularized uh, economy that you're talking about. And um, it it, it expresses the desiring machines at almost at the level of their substrate. Um, Does we have Andrew? Andrew want to get in there or does anybody else comment? Also, if you'd like to be unmuted to ask a question or say something, please. let me know. Otherwise, I will continue reading. I would just like to say that, like, I really think there's this interesting kind of philosophy of failure going on underneath here. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> what was the line I liked in particular was, um, yeah, there's, there was not even a multiplicity ever having been lost in the first place. Like, you know, this idea of having achieved and lost something is itself like incorrect and a failure to think. Uh, could you uh, elaborate on that a little bit more? I mean, I, to me, it's just a very kind of interesting sort of like fractal level failure, like on every scale that they're talking about. And I think it's a very interesting concept. You know. So not, 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 not only do you lose something, you never even had it in the first place. Like it's a failure for you well, to think that you um, lost something. What I see here and what Doug has uh, emphasized as an implicit critique of uh, Lacanian ontological theory, right? And uh, what happens in <clears throat> with Lacan, right, is this primordially lost object, which was lost from the beginning, which of course <laughs> implies a kind of uh, primordial totality, which could have never been, could have never been, you know, totalized. And it is not not only do they say that, and we will see this in the following paragraphs, not only do they say, you know, there is not, there doesn't exist a totality to which, or towards which we are moving, but rather there doesn't exist a primordial totality from which these parts arise, which is very interesting, right? Mm-hmm. And it totally goes against what um, Lacan has theorized. Mm-hmm. That actually um, reminds me of a question I had during your original set of questions you're reading, Craig, um, about, so I was definitely like not understanding the partial object before, but I think I do now. My question is whether the global object corresponds kind of to Lacan's uh, petty object. Ah. Yeah, the, well, remember for Deleuze and Gattari, um, the 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 petit objet a is a lost object, right? Uh-huh. And they're they're saying that there's nothing like that uh, in the ontology that they're attempting to formulate here. If anything, if something's lost, it's this notion of subjectivity. This mm-hmm. this notion of globalized, totalized unities, namely individuals, namely Oedipus, right? There there does exist, um, and I think. Andrew was very apt to point out this kind of primordial substrate that is like a totality, that is like a continuum, right? But the only way, I think, from an epistemological standpoint that we even get to know that is through the particularizations that emerge out of it, which are the the breaks in the flows of that continuum, right? And so that's what a partial object does for us here. It helps us, you know, to identify at a very base level, like what are flows? And what are breaks? Oh, it's basically the movement of matter or energy or something between two poles. 
like the way I'm picturing this right now is kind of that like the the partial object thing is is that like the the cutters are really still connected to the you know substrate the the flow that they're cutting into they're really kind of all Mm -hmm. connected up in that so thinking of one thing as part of a flow versus a cutter is kind of considering it as just a piece and not a thing in its own can, yeah. can i just uh, before you guys continue because uh, i sure. see a discussion in the chat going on and maybe it could be avoided from the beginning if i read again the um, psychoanalytic notion of the partial object oh please do right? which uh, i've read before so, so this is from the language of psychoana- psychoanalysis by jean laplace and pontalis and then this uh, definition they give they say quote in klein's use of part object object is meant in its fullest psychoanalytic sense though partial the object breast or other part of the body is endowed in fantasy with traits comparable to a person's for example it can be persecutory reassuring benevolent etc a final point for the kleinians the relationship to part objects does more than typify a stage of psychosexual development. It continues to play a big part even after the relation to whole object objects has become established. So, to maybe answer the question, uh, Park Bench has posed, right? I tried to read this passage, and I feel that the notion that uh, Deleuze and unearthed here with the notion of partial object is a heavy, heavily influenced one from the um, from the long tradition of psycho- psychoanalysis, of course. Right? So it cannot be understood apart from it. I I think one of the things that might that could tend to confuse someone about the nature of partial objects is the actual example that they use, the whole breast example. I mean, consider for a moment somebody going into the psychoanalytic space and talking about their mother's bedroom, right? Or maybe a dress that the mother had worn, or maybe something else. Maybe it's their their teacher who happens to be female and uh, was their, their teacher in the third grade with whom they have some trauma associated. The, the psychoanalyst, the Freudian psychoanalyst anyway, is going to make a reduction of all of those objects, which, which are partial objects, to the global object of the mother, right? And now the proximity of the mother's breast to the global object of the mother make it seem like a foregone conclusion. Well, when we're talking about a mother's breast, we're actually talking about the mom, right? No, that's actually what Deleuze and Gattari are saying is, no, there's, how is it, for example, that anything is composed I mean, even the the body of a child, the the individuality of a child, it happens in virtue of its connection through partial objects. Here's the first thing: um, mouth to breast. Does this mean that there's no relation to the mother? They, they're they're going to address this later on. They're right. saying, no, that's not the case. There is a relationship there, but it's through a series of relations that the mouth to breast partial object is connected to the notion of the mother as a parent and that notion of mother as a parent as a sort of uh, conjugation or synthesis of those partial objects is functioning alongside and is not subordinated to those partial objects right and what i would like to emphasize uh, apropos of what you've just been saying 
is that the biggest addition that Deleuze and Atari make here is precisely these connections, right? And, and these connections uh, don't exist with Melanie Klein. They don't exist in the, the general psychoanalytic theory of partial objects, right? These partial objects, as I've read, may uh, take on a guise uh, <clears throat> of a certain or a certain role in, in the individual, but there is no fundamental relationship um, between these partial objects, which for Zagatari is unacceptable when we take into account their notion of flows, right? And the whole ontology that is built around them, as Craig has emphasized in the beginning. Yeah. Also, uh, Normal Noah is asking in the comments, um, so would partial objects just be pieces of a whole? Like is the the body as an object, while a partial ob object is an arm or a leg. I, I would say there that the the question presupposes a notion of a whole. Yeah, yeah it presupposes a totality. Uh, I just wanted to say that as well. Right, and, seems and, to me, yeah. and Deleuze and Gattari, there's a sense in which they are backing away. They're disavowing a notion of of totalities, but right. there's also a way in which they're not. And and that needs to be to figure be figured in. I mean, if we're if by whole or totality we mean um, the the synthesis of uh, many partial objects as a as a quote unquote recognizable global object, such as a parent, for example. Well, the, how how is it that that we we come to the establishment or understanding of there being such an object as a parent? It happens in virtue mm -hmm. of partial objects. It, I hate to say secondary because they're not saying that. It's it's rhizomatic. It, so if we were to flatten out, like, for, for example, let's take the global object of the Earth. If we were to piece apart all of the partial objects that compose the Earth and put them on a flat plane, there would be Africa over here. There would be Asia over here. There would be North America and so forth. And then all of the miniature parts, all of those objects, uh, like the states in the United States, California, New York, those would also be partial objects and their cities and their towns and their right, people right. and the bookshelves and everything else. And one of the objects that's also on that flat plane <clears throat> is the entire Earth. Right. So and this is what Parkinson got into when he wrote that, and I quote: "I think partial object is anything which serves as a, as a supposed substitute metonymically for anything else. The body itself could be a partial object." And I think that that's right in the Dunozabatarian universe, right, of which we're speaking right now. This is completely right, and not only the body itself, but something which goes further, uh, further than the body, right? As you've said. So yeah, that's completely right. Maybe we'll I pick mean, up now. Uh, oh, did Park Bench or somebody want to jump in? I, I'd like I'd like to mention something, uh, okay. which uh, you know, uh, the way that the partial objects are presented is this: is if you know the breast was a partial object because the baby is concentrating on the breast, not on the uh, whole body of the mother, mm -hmm. and and uh, and then that's related to the mouth, which is. Uh, you know, not uh, is a partial object because it, it's just operating on its own, not necessarily taking into account the whole body of the baby. That's that's their picture. But right. it seems to me that, that what a desiring machine is, is it, it's composed of both the breast and the mouth. Mm, and right. so that's, that why, that's why it's that's the right. flow and the cutting of the flow, because that's the, right. 
the desiring machine is the relationship between the two things, not like the partial object, each thing separately as a part of a greater whole. That's right. Yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. right. Well, in the interest of, uh, of moving forward, yeah, Andrew, you mind can, continuing? Right. Go ahead. We live today in the age of partial objects, bricks that have been shattered to bits and leftovers. We no longer believe in the myth of the existence of fragments that, like pieces of an antique statue, are merely waiting for the last one to be turned up so that they may all be glued back together to create a unity that is precisely the same as the original unity. We no longer believe in a primordial unity that once existed or in a final totality that awaits us at some future date. We no longer believe in the dull gray outlines of a dreary, colorless dialectic of evolution aimed at forming a harmonious whole out of, a heter- out of heterogeneous bits by rounding off their rough edges. We believe only in totalities that are peripheral, peripheral, and if we discover such a totality alongside various separate parts, it is a whole of these particular parts, but does not totalize them. It is a unity of all of these particular parts, but does not unify them. Rather, it is added to them as a new part fabricated separately. Yeah. This. Right, and this is very interesting. And what I would like to highlight out of this whole section is this uh, rounding off of the rough edges to, to which Deleuze and Atari are strongly opposed. And as we will see later with the puzzle pieces, these rough edges should never be rounded off, right? This is not something we we are doing to these uh, to these objects, which should make them fit into a kind of totality, right? Right, and and this goes for any kind of reductive metaphysics. Um, we don't have to be talking about global objects. Uh, this could be like like I mentioned in a previous discussion any um, metaphysics that follows in the tradition of Democritus, trying to search for the very smallest thing as being the basis of reality, also falls victim to this tendency of thought to find something distinct outside of the the network of relations that, that constitute desiring machines. Right, and furthering this um, paragraph to, to the logic of sense, right, the, the famous Deleuze book, uh, I definitely see how, how Deleuze's approach to paradoxes has a, a has played a giant role in this um, paragraph and in this talk about totalities, right? And, and you talking about reductionist metaphysics, which uh, inevitably try to avoid any kind of contradiction, right, or any kind of paradox which may arise within its theory. Uh, made me think this as well. So, so Deleuze is saying here, you know, these paradoxes or Let's say these round, round these these rough edges shouldn't be rounded off. They should be in a in a, in a way embraced, right? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, everything we're saying is kind of circling these first two paragraphs, for sure. Um, yeah, and I think that uh, as a quick digression, uh, when I was uh, drawing up these schemas for for the first through for, for this uh, section. I thought that these first couple of pages, the 42, 43, were the most uh, fruitful when it comes to, to, to some kind of drawings, right? Because they're so palpable, they're so visual to me, right? How these parts uh, interrelate with each other and uh, how they interact and how they oppose this kind of whole. So maybe we can continue if that's what you were saying. Sure. Oh, by the way, right. that reminds me. I 
when I was in Japan the last time, I picked up a philosophy book there that actually has a diagram that corresponds directly to this um, this paragraph here in the book. And I'll post that later. It's really it's really neat. It's done in anime fashion. It's, it's pretty cool. Um, right. Anyway, uh, does anyone else want to want to read? I'd, I'd like other readers in there if uh, anyone wants to jump in. Otherwise, I'll go ahead and do it. OK, so. Uh, it comes into being, but applying this time to the whole is some inspired fragment composed separately. So Proust writes of the unity of Balzac's creation, though his remark is also an apt description of his own oeuvre. In the literary machine of Proust's In Search of Lost Time constitutes, uh, we are struck by the fact that all the parts are produced as asymmetrical sections, paths that suddenly come to an end, hermetically sealed boxes, non-communicating vessels, Watertight compartments in which there are gaps, even between things that are not contiguous, gaps that are affirmations, pieces of a puzzle belonging not to any one puzzle, but to many, pieces assembled by forcing them into a certain place where they may or may not belong, their unmatched edges violently bent out of shape, forcibly made to fit together to interlock with a number of pieces always left over. It is a schizoid work par excellence. It is almost as though the author's guilt, his confessions of guilt, are merely a sort of joke. In Kleinian terms, it might be said that the depressive position is only a cover-up for a more deeply rooted schizoid attitude. For the rigors of the law are not only an apparent expression of the protest of the one, whereas their real object is the absolution of fragmented universes in which the law never unites anything in a single whole, but on the contrary, measures and maps out the divergences, the dispersions, the exploding into fragments of something that is innocent precisely because its source is madness. This is why in Proust's work, the apparent theme of guilt is tightly interwoven with a completely different theme, totally contradicting it. The plant-like innocence that results from the total compartmentalization of the sexes, both in Charlou's encounters in Albertine's slumber, where flowers blossom in profusion, and the utter innocence of madness is revealed, whether it be the patent madness of Charlou's or the supposed madness of Albertine. The so one thing that stands out, yeah, yeah. Good. Uh, the one thing that stands out to me here is this mention of guilt, um, it be, because in the last paragraph hopefully we get to it today, of this section, they talk about guilt. And this is the one thread that runs through the political philosophy of Deleuze and Guattari is the way that guilt is deployed politically uh, as a way to repress the subject. And Andrew, I'm, I, I, I'm wondering what you're thinking here. Uh, well, uh, it isn't on the uh, topic of guilt, but maybe we, when we get to the last paragraph or maybe tomorrow in the recap, if you join us, maybe we can talk about it more if we don't reach the end. But, but what I wanted to address here is this uh, this mentioning of Balzac and what he does throughout his oeuvre, whoever is familiar with it, over a hundred novels right, that he's written, what he does most of the time <clears throat> is... Um, compose this kind of mise-en-scene of, uh, of characters and places but what he does masterfully and what his work is uh, to me when I read it been all about is the way he in these individual characters manages to 
compose the entire milieu, right? Or, or to kind of reduce the entire milieu to the to this one character and to this uh, one character's uh, behavior, right? Mm. Or thoughts, whatever, right? And this is opposite to what I feel Kafka does and to what I feel many of the <clears throat> later Russian writers do, right? So that's yeah. an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah, I think in Kafka's work, uh, the, the character of Joseph K or the man from the countryside and before the law is, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, expresses the, the very same thing that we're talking about. There's somebody who gets extracted from a social milieu or feels a, a sense of alienation. And it's almost as if this sense of guilt just gets thrown onto their shoulders in such a way that everything is explained in terms of the guilt and suffering and curiosity of a single individual who's alienated within a system in which they live. Shall we continue? Andrew, would you mind um, picking up the next paragraph? Yeah, right. Um, so, hence, Proust maintained that the whole itself is a product produced as nothing more than a part alongside other parts which it neither unifies nor totalizes, though it has an effect on these other parts simply because it establishes aberrant paths of communication between non-communicating vessels, transverse unities between elements that retain all their differences within their own particular boundaries. Thus, in the trip on the train in search of lost time, there is never a totality of what is seen nor a unity of the points of view, except along the transversal that the frantic passenger traces from one window to the to the other quote in order to draw together in order to weave weave intermittent and opposite fragments unquote this drawing together this reweaving is what joyce called re-embodying the body without organs is produced as a whole but in its own particular place within the process of production alongside the parts that it neither unifies nor totalizes and when it operates on them, when it turns back upon the, when it turns back upon them, it brings about transverse communications, transfinite summarizations, polar vocal and transcursive inscriptions on its own surface, on which the functional breaks of partial objects are continually intersected by breaks in the signifying chains and by breaks affected by a subject that uses them as reference points in order to locate itself. The whole not only coexists with all the parts, it is contiguous to them. It exists as a product that is produced apart from them and yet at the same time is related to them. Geneticists have noted the same phenomenon in the particular language of the science. Quote, amino acids are assimilated individually into the cell and then are arranged in the proper sequence by a mechanism analogous to a template onto which the distinctive side chain of each acid keys into its proper position, unquote. As a general rule, the problem of the relationships between parts and the whole continues to be rather awkwardly formulated by classic me mechanism and vitalism. So long as the whole is considered as a totality derived from the parts, or as an original totality from which the parts emulate, uh, emanate, sorry, or as a dialectical totalization, neither mechanism nor vitalism has really understood the nature of desiring machines, nor the twofold need to consider the role of production and desire, and the role of desire in mechanics. Mm. 
Yeah. And there's a recapitulation of this thesis here that um, anything that we perceive to be as total or whole in any sense is produced alongside the production um, is, is the, for me is, is kind of the salient point uh, of this paragraph. I would love to, to be able to delve into these literary, <clears throat> these literary mentionings of Proust in depth, but I'm just not a literary major. And I would love to hear someone's opinion who is maybe more well-versed if we have those people in the audience. Maybe yeah. um, what, what, I mean, I've read some of Proust, but not this much. Not enough to, to really comment on what's going on with him here. Um, the one thing that I can say, if you're interested in understanding um, Deleuze's theory of epistemology and what his understanding of of truth, look at the Proust and Signs book. Um, right. It's fantastic. Mm. All right. Um, maybe I'll just continue in the interest of, of moving ahead because we're getting into the Melanie Klein part here. Right. But just before you begin, uh, somebody asked about the depressive schizoid position before we before I started reading. So maybe I can. Oh, yeah. I'm going to read from the, from the comments. Somebody Please. quoted the exact same book. So they say, according to Melanie Klein, a modality of object relations which is established after the paranoid position, the depressive position is reached around the fourth month of life, month of life and is gradually overcome in the course of the first year, though it may recur during childhood and can be reactivated in the adult, notably in states of mourning and depression. So, so again, we see a kind of... Uh, <clears throat> repressed or primordial position, which uh, in turn comes back later in life, which is a popular theme in psychoanalysis. Yeah. So maybe you go on and then we talk about this later. Wow. I mean, th this has been the focus a lot of the late night discussions that we've been having. It always seems to come up the relation of depression to capitalism. And it mm -hmm. seems here we have the beginnings of a theory of depression and its relationship to uh, schizoidal behavior and maybe uh, a more general theory of of schizophrenic, at least philosophically construed. Uh, this might be some like a, a thread to pick up when we do that uh, next time. Right. right. I Anybody think it's a, it's a big question, but, but I think if you're asking whether somebody wants to read, I think Jack of Hearts volunteered to read. Oh, uh, please do. Yeah, go ahead. Hmm. Jack of Hearts, are you there? Paging Jack of Hearts. He is, but not responding. Okay, I'll do the next. Um, oh, he is. Well, how about this? I'll do the next one, and Jack of Hearts will pick up um, the, the subsequent paragraph. And, right. and so will Doug. Okay, uh, there is no sort of evolution of drives that will cause these drives and their objects to progress in the direction of an integrated whole any more than there is an originality from which they can be derived. Um, First of all, that's just an, a, a very strong uh, claim to make in, in the world of philosophy. Um, Melanie Klein was responsible for the marvelous discovery of the partial objects, that, that world of explosions, rotations, vibrations. But how can we explain the fact that she has nonetheless failed to grasp the logic of these objects? It is doubtless because, first of all, she conceives of them as fantasies and judges them from the point of view of consumption rather than 
regarding them as genuine production. This was the problem associated with Plato and Kant earlier. Right, right. Yeah. Especially with Kant. Right? Yeah. She explains them in terms of causal mechanisms, introjection and projection, for instance, of mechanisms that produce certain effects, gratification and frustration, and of mechanisms of expression, good or bad the moral thread, right? An approach that forces her to adopt an idealist conception of the partial object. Once again, a psychoanalyst not going far enough. Um, of the sort carried out by desiring machines. I'm sorry, uh, she does not relate the partial objects to a real process of production of the sort carried out by desiring machines. For In the second place, she cannot rid herself of the notion that schizoparanoid partial objects are related to a whole, either to an original whole that has existed earlier in a primary phase or to a whole that will eventually appear in a final depressive stage, the complete object. I'm thinking Hegel has something to do with this um, sentence. Partial objects hence appear to her to be derived from global persons. Not only are they destined to play a role in totalities aimed at integrating the ego, the object and drives later in life, but they also constitute the original type of object relation between the ego, the mother, and the mother. And in the final analysis, that is where the crux of the matter lies. Partial objects unquestionably have a sufficient charge, uh, charge in and of themselves to blow up all of Oedipus and totally demolish its ridiculous claim to represent the unconscious, to triangulate the unconscious, to encompass the entire production of desire. The question that thus arises here is not at all of the relative importance of what might be called the pre-Oedipal in relation to Oedipus itself, since pre-Oedipal still has a developmental or structural relationship to Oedipus. The question rather is that of the absolutely anedipal nature of the production of desire. Because, uh, but because Melanie Klein insists on considering from the point of view of the whole of global persons and of complete objects, and also perhaps because she's eager to avoid any sort of contretemps with the International Psychoanalytic Association that bears above its door the description, and this is kind of worrying, let no one enter here who does not Oedipus. She does not make use of partial objects to shatter the iron collar of Oedipus. On the contrary, she uses them or makes a pretense of using them to water down Oedipus, to miniaturize it, to find it everywhere, to extend it to the very earliest years of life. Right. This is yeah. very playful, I feel, especially with the IPA reference, considering what happened with Lacan. It's a very right. interesting passage. Um. One of the things that this paragraph made me think of, uh, and I will just go back to the first sentence, um, there's no sort of evolution of drives. Um, it made me think of what does a schizoanalytic ethics look like if none of these drives ever proceed towards any sort of integrated whole, any sort of integrated meaning of life? Um, kind of reminds me of stoicism. There's almost an analog to the fatalism of stoicism, which says, look, everything in this world comes to pass. What do we need in order to overcome the anxiety that is brought about by that feeling? Well, we have to accelerate beyond it, as Baudrillard says, right? So in the same sense, um, we, we could perform an, our own kind of schizoanalytic acceleration by disavowing integrated whole. I, and I, I point out here that if we were to focus on in our schizoanalytics, uh, 
the notion of life being interminably fragmentary. Um, what does that look like in practice? How do we do art? How do we do uh, therapy? How do we do work that relates to uh, this notion of an interminable, an interminably fragments, uh, fragmented set of fragments? Um, the problem um, is that uh, when you when you look at systems theory, um, what people do is that they imagine a system on a back a homogeneous plenum as a background, and yeah. so and so it seems to me that uh, you know what uh, Deleuze and Guattari are saying is that you know we have to get away from this idea that there's Oedipus and then there's just nothing else. And rather look at the background on which the Oedipal uh, program is, the Oedipal system is produced, and concentrate on what's going on in that background, which is this schizo schizoid process. But the but the, the the schizoid process taken on its own is just as nihilistic as the the um, uh, uh, looking at things just as systems, and there's nothing else but systems. So I, I think you're right. Ken, um, but like what uh, I think to answer Craig's question is that that's what the, the fragmentary uh, onto ethics gets us is that it gives us a way to actually blow that picture apart, the edible picture, and get something from it. Because, you know, first, if everything's fragmentary, then first you have to situate yourself in one of these fragments and understand that. And then you get that fragment and how it relates to other fragments. And you get, you know, this whole there's a whole universe of discourse opened up by uh, that um, starting point. Yeah, I know. I agree with you completely. And and so you get this thing of the negating of the Oedipal, but then later you get a, a thing, you know, where they say, uh, well, the Oedipal really does is, exist. It's just not that important. Oh, can you cut Japanese out at the end? Diagrams. I say that the Oedipal does exist, but it's not just not that important. You know, that, that's right. Yeah. And and that's the thing. I think this sort of amateur mistake to make is like, oh, yeah, Oedipus, not not a real thing. No, totally a real thing. Right. Right. Um, right. This is not the universal language for like all subjectivity. And I like what Ken said about um, seeing the background behind Oedipus, because this background is actually where this familial triangle arises from, right? And if we were to observe the um, the primarity of the, the this triangle, right, we would have to go beyond it and see where it came from and then see the whole plane out of which, the, the whole plane of flows, right, or desiring machines out of which it arises, which is super correct, I think. And, and one of the things about the Oedipus is that it's a way of, um, a, 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 uh, you know, creating uh, blame, and you know that 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 basically it says that whatever your problem is, it's reducible to your relationship between your mother and father, regardless of who else was in the environment and what else was going on, and and so you know, and so basically what I think uh, Deleuze and Guattari is saying, hey, there's a lot going on besides that. Maybe it's your uncle that abused you, not your mother and father. Right. And that, that, that trauma is not reducible to the relationship with your mother or father. And exactly. we will see this in the later paragraph, in the next paragraph, right, when they sit to talk about the train and Melanie Klein, how she deliberately, right, opposed these design machines, which were 
abundant with the children she worked with, right? And maybe this is the time when we move on. <clears throat> sure. Yeah, Doug, did you want to pick up the next paragraph? Sure. So we're starting with uh, if we hear choose. Right. That's right. Cool. <clears throat> If we here choose the example of the analyst least prone to see everything in terms of Oedipus, we do so only in order to demonstrate what a forcing was necessary for her to make Oedipus the sole measure of desiring production. Naturally, this is all the more true in the case of run-of-the-mill practitioners who no longer have the slightest notion of what the psychoanalytic quote-unquote movement is all about. It is no longer a question of suggestion, but of sheer terrorism. Melanie Klein herself writes, the first time Dick came to me, he manifested no sort of affect when his nurse handed him over to me. When I showed him the toys I had put ready, he looked at them without the faintest interest. I took a big train and put it beside a smaller one and called them Daddy Train and Dick Train. Thereupon, he picked up the train I called Dick and made it roll to the window and said, Station. I explained, The station is Mummy. Dick is going into Mummy. He left the train ran into the space between the outer and inner doors of the room, shutting himself in, saying, dark, and ran out directly. He went through this performance several times. I explained to him, it is dark inside mummy. Dick is inside dark mummy. <laughs> Meantime, he picked up the train again, but soon ran back into the space between the doors. I think she's, this is a, a womb space, right? Um, when I was saying that he was going into dark mummy, he said twice into a questioning way, nurse as his analysis progressed dick had also discovered the wash basin as symbolizing the mother's body and he displayed an extraordinary dread of being wetted with water say that it's oedipus or you'll get a slap in the face the psychoanalyst no longer says to the patient tell me a little bit about your desiring machines won't you instead he screams answer daddy and mommy when i speak to you even melanie klein so, the entire process of desiring production is trampled underfoot and reduced to rebatusur parental images, laid out step by step in accordance with supposed pre Oedipal stages totalized in Oedipus, and the logic of partial objects is thereby reduced to nothing. Oedipus thus becomes at this point the crucial premise in the logic of psychoanalysis. <clears throat> For as we suspected at the very beginning, partial objects are only apparently derived from preleveseur global persons. They are really produced by being drawn from a flow or a non-personal hile with which they re-establish contact by connecting themselves to other partial objects. The unconscious is totally unaware of per persons as such. Partial objects are not representations of parental figures or of the basic patterns of family relations. They are parts of desiring machines having to do with a process and with relations of production that are both irreducible and prior to anything that may be, may be made to conform to the Oedipal figure. Yeah, that's, that's really good. Here we're, we're reintroduced to uh, their, their use of the word Heil as this sort mm -hmm. of non-personal or sub-personal substrate through which, um, you know, we can call the continuum of desiring machines. Um, one of the, the interesting, uh, claims that pops out here is that the unconscious is totally aware of persons, global persons as such. And I think the implications that would have for all sorts of um, things like dream analysis or um, uh, active imagination, which are the, the staples of the 
of psychoanalytic practice today. Um, Can you uh, expand on that? Like what you think, um, what's the implication for the person in a dream? The, you know, yeah, it's interesting. Um, we don't get a fully fleshed out theory of dream analysis from, from uh, Gattari, but he does make some gestures to what it, it looks like. And it really edges on the discussion here. He, he sort of recapitulates these um these ideas in in soft subversions in his um his dreams of this guy named i think it's a man named yasha david and uh his dreams of deleuze that he had and i think what we would say is that even for example let's say you had a dream about someone in the dream it's not that that dream represents that person in their totality right but there's a set of associations which come from a, an investigation of that dream that will probably most likely lead away from from the image of that person or their their appearance within the context of that dream and this is so different from Freudian analysis yeah and and you know i i think i mentioned earlier at one time i had the luxury of being doing an analysis weekly um, because my insurance was so good. And I would say that, um, I mean, there was mention of the archetypes and things like that, but I think the, um, the evolution of Jungian psychoanalysis has adopted some of the, the, the practical implications that are being mentioned here, not because of Dulles and Gattari, but maybe because those currents appeared elsewhere uh, in the psychoanalytic world. Um, like I didn't have a dream. Yeah, in my in my in my um, psychoanalysis experience, I did not um, experience this sort of reduction that we're talking about with Freud. However, anytime I mentioned anything about politics or my involvement in radical politics in the psychoanalytic space, the analyst moved very far away from that, didn't want to even touch it. And I find that very telling. So there's there's a I think, you know, just from an anecdotal my my own anecdote here, um, it might be the case that the the bourgeois aspect of psychoanalysis, the sort of bourgeois roots of psychoanalysis um, has or I would say the 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 bourgeois facet of psychoanalysis corresponds with the way that the bourgeois interprets um, the, or is expressed today in our, in our culture, at least from the point of view of ideology. I mean, there's a significant tolerance of, in terms of me as the analysis being able to interpret the kinds of things that came up in dreams. Um, there isn't an immediate reduction to archetypes or there isn't an immediate reduction to uh, the Oedipus, for example. However, there is an upper limit within that analytical space that doesn't tolerate talk about politics, that doesn't talk about um, how to restructure the material conditions in our society. And, that, and Deleuze and Gattari are going to see that as problematic. And I think that yesterday, I think Matt posted a next excerpt from Minima Moralia, uh, Adorno's work. Mm-hmm. And uh, as soon as you started talking about this uh, psychoanalytic practice, during the any kind of political movement in, inside the analytic space, I immediately thought of the the bourgeois constitution that must be lying within it, right, for it to, to for it to be so horrified of this uh, of this political 
implications because and, and what makes me think of Adorno is uh, tying in the familial bourgeois conception, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. The bourgeois conception of the family with politics, uh, he says, and he concludes in a way that any unpolitical attempt to distance oneself from this kind of uh, from this kind of structure will inevitably fail. And even what is even more interesting will even incorporate ourselves even more in the bourgeois uh, yeah. structure. Right? It might be worth saying too that, and I know there's a, there's a lot of folks with whom I've interacted who are dealing with depression or have been to therapy and, and, and things like that. And there are a lot of people on this server who, um, instantiate uh, different genders and are in different sorts of family relationships and conjugal relationships that that are outside of the conception of the nuclear family. But one thing that I, I would note is that psychoanalysis, Jungian psychoanalysis, Freudian psychoanalysis, whatever the case may be, may seem like it has evolved or expanded to include these sort of different uh, conjugal and family relationships, but, and, and we can celebrate, uh, the fact that, oh, we are so diverse these days. Now we can bring, for example, we, we have a new way of, of dealing with, for example, a gay couple rather than, um, you know, sort of, um, you know, launching an attack on, on homosexuality, which is implicit in, in Freud's work. It's like, oh, now we, we can, you know, deal with the uh, a man and, and a man who are together, maybe even have a child to um, and, 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 and deal with them in a way that's that's open and liberal in some sense. But the, the problem remains is that the Oedipal construct has been able to adapt. So if we're dealing things strictly at the level of family and relationships, anytime that relationships are mentioned in the um, right, right. psychoanalytic space, I think we have Oedipus kind of hiding around the corner. Unless, and, and I think Deleuze and Gattari are going to say, like, look, if you're not talking about the, the entirety of the complex motivators of society as informing the way that any relationship uh, internally functions, you know, we we're, we're missing something in our analysis. And uh, yeah, Oedipus feels extremely adaptive when, yeah, as you said, when this familial side of it is uh, taken into consideration, and especially with uh, anthropological notions, right? This happens as well when Western anthropologists go and inspect some uh, detached tribes, right, in, in South America, let's say, right, these uh, familial adaptations to their societal structure cannot be avoided, how, however hard they try, right? And it's right. because um, for our Western conception, family is not even impossible to devoid of the bourgeois conception. It is impossible to devoid of our everyday life. It is, it is everywhere, and that's why it's so easy for a theory like the Oedipal theory, right, which could be dominant and has the potential to be dominant, right? Yeah. I really want to read that um, Engels article on the family at some point. We should do that as a group. Yeah, no, that'd be great. Mm -hmm. And that definitely connects with this. Yeah. And, and also, interestingly, um, not to get too far afield, but I, I worked mm -hmm. in some radical spaces before with some older radicals who said, look, at one time, you know, us LGBTQ folks, um, we disparaged the institution of bourgeois marriage. And we wanted nothing to do 
and it's interesting that you know in in the late 90s and up till now you know uh that the movement has turned to agitating for the right to be married and and such a focus has been placed on that um and i mean i'm not pointing that out as that being good or bad but just noting how that's interesting how that how there's been a shift in in sort of priorities and, and perception Right, and maybe I can read the um, speaking of Jung and maybe these archetypes. Maybe we can move on to the next section, the next let's, program. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> right. Uh, I was so, just curious at first if um, those couple French French references in the um, paragraph there were ref- relevant to a comment on Prelevesseur a couple times. Oh, the yeah, where they have the direct translation in French. Yeah, Roger, you're unmuted, so maybe you can join my voice instead of typing. Mm-hmm. Yes, I will. Uh, I will help you up with that a little bit later. I drifted away because of academic stuff right now, so I'm sorry. Okay. No worries. Yeah. All right, we'll come back to it. Yeah, go ahead. Right, Andrew, if you want to pick up the next part. No, oh, you're breaking up like crazy. Okay, so when the break between Freud and Jung is discussed, the modest and practical point of the disagreement that marked the beginning of their differences is too often forgotten. Jung remarked that in the process of transference, the psychoanalyst frequently appeared in the guise of the devil, a god, or a sorcerer, and that the roles he assumed in the patient's eyes went far beyond any sort of parental images. They eventually came to a total parting of the ways, yet Jung's initial reservation was a telling one. The same remark holds true of children's games. A child never confines himself to playing court house, to playing only at being daddy and mommy. He also plays at being a magician, a cowboy, a cop, a robber, a train, a little car. The train is not necessarily daddy, nor is the train station necessarily mommy. The problem has to do not with the sexual nature of desiring machines, but with the family nature of the sexuality. Admittedly, once the child has grown up, he finds himself deeply involved in social relations that are no longer familial relations. But since these relations supposedly come into being at a later stage in life, there are only two possible ways in which this can be explained. It must be granted either the sexuality is sublimated or neutralized in uh, in and through social and metaphysical relations in the form of an analytic asteroid, or else that these relations bring into play non-sexual energy for which sexuality has merely served as the symbol of an anagogical beyond, quote-unquote. Right, and something struck me immediately as uh, what we were saying previously about Oedipus and how this is not the only, this is not the only model, right? But but what psychoanalysis obviously, as they say here, obviously, against probably uh, intentionally right is the sexual and non-sexual relations of later life yeah yeah but rather it tends to interpret them through all of these uh, <clears throat> all of these already incorporated relations from early life and this is what we've seen with the schizoid position right with Klein, it's not that the schizoid position develops uh, as a consequence of some desiring machines later in life, it is rather, according to her, that <clears throat> what happens first is that the schizoid position is formed in the fourth or whatever month of the baby's life, and then it also and then it just uh, emerges later, which uh, those in Atari don't uh, agree with. Obviously. 
Yeah, great. Uh, there, I mean, what we're seeing here is a, a lot of retread. Uh, shall we just continue right. on? Yeah. I think uh, yeah. I'll do the next paragraph. Um, unless Jack of Hearts wants to come in, I want I want to hear them speak before uh, um, we have them read. So it was their disagreement on this particular point that eventually made the break between Freud and Jung irreconcilable. Yet at the same time, two of them continued to share the belief that the libido cannot invest in a social or metaphysical field without some sort of mediation. This is not the case, however. Let us consider a child at play or a child crawling about exploring the various rooms of the house he lives in. He looks intently at an electrical outlet. He moves his body about like a machine. He uses one of his legs as though it were an oar, or he goes into the kitchen, into the study. He runs toys, toy cars back and forth. It is obvious that his parents are present all this time and that the child would have nothing were it not for them. But that is not the real matter at issue. The matter at issue is to find out whether everything he touches is experienced as a representative of his parents. Ever since birth, his crib, his mother's breast, her nipple, his bowel movements are desiring machines connected to parts of his body. It seems to us self-contradictory to maintain, on the one hand, that the child lives among partial objects, and that on the other hand, he conceives of these partial objects as being his parents, or even different parts of his parents' bodies. Strictly speaking, it is not true that a baby experiences his mother's breast as a separate part of her body. It exists, rather, as a part of a desiring machine connected to the baby's mouth and is experienced as an object providing a non-personal flow of milk, be it copious or scanty. A desiring machine and partial object do not represent anything. A partial object is not representative, even though it admittedly serves as a basis of relations and as a mere assigning agents, a place and a function. But these agents are not persons any more than these relations are intersubjective. They are relations of production as such and agents of production and anti-production. Ray Bradbury demonstrates this very well when he describes the nursery as a place where desiring production and group fantasy occur, as a place where the only connection is that between partial objects and agents. The small child lives with his family around the clock, but within the bosom of this family, and from the very first days of his life, he immediately begins having an amazing non-familial experience that psychoanalysis has completely failed to take into account. Linder's painting attracts our attention once again. And I, I haven't looked at Linder's painting. I think I'll look that up right now. Um, Andrew, Isn't that the one uh, right at the oh, beginning? Of the no, that's the one on the, the, the cover of the book, right. I think it's the boy in the machine. Like, not the cover, but, but the first page, I think. That's uh, right. When, yeah. when, when he says partial objects and agents, that reminds me of this uh, agent network theory of Bruno Latour. Factor network. <laughs> and I was wondering whether Ray Bradbury was the science fiction author, or the, is that a psych, another psychoanalysis? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's the science fiction author, because I know Deleuze was a huge reader of, of science fiction oh, and, really? and, and American authors in general. How's that? I mean, I mean, where's the reference? What other authors does he reference? Is what I'm asking. The, the reference in French is Bradbury, L'homme illustré, the illustrated man. Um, oh, okay. So the other. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's his most famous book. 
And that is, a book, that is a book where the illustrated man has tattoos on his body, but the tattoos change. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Wasn't this the guy that wrote Fahrenheit 451? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. As, as a high school teacher, I've, I've, I've taught all this stuff. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. Uh, in fact, um, Ray Bradbury um, was lived not far from where I live. Somebody mentioned J.J. Uh, Ballard in, in the chat. When does he come into the discussion here? Because I've encountered him uh, after reading Baudrillard. Yeah, I was just wondering if anybody was, was a fan of Ballard, because I know Bataille and uh, Baudrillard also were fans of Ballard. Right. And He's an amazing author. author. But, yeah. But I'm not yeah. generally a fan of science fiction, and he, he uh, spoke to me, so yeah. That was nice. There is a, a, a library in uh, Big Sur, California, devoted to Henry Miller, and um, you can find a copy of Anti-Oedipus there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sexist was uh, a big inspiration. Shall we continue on? Let's let's try mm -hmm. to knock this out. Right. Uh, Jack of Hearts. Jack of Hearts going twice. Uh, if you want to go ahead and pick up the next paragraph, it is not. Oh, do you, do we need to unmute? Unmute, yeah, I think so. So yeah, Jack of Hearts, you'll have to unmute. Your server unmuted. We've done as much as we could. <laughs> okay. Andrew, why don't you take it? If Jack of Hearts right. comes on. Oh, oh. Maybe the next one. Okay. <laughs> so just remind me, um, it is not a question, right? It is not a question denying the vital importance of parents or the love attachment of children to their mothers and fathers. So here, what we were speaking of, right? Continuing, it is a question of knowing what the place and the function of parents are within desiring production, rather than doing the opposite and forcing the entire inter interplay of desiring machines to fit within the restricted code of Oedipus. How does the child first come to define the places and the functions that the parents are doing are going to occupy as special agents closely related to other agents? From the very beginning, Oedipus exists in one form and one form only, open in all directions to a social field, to a field of production directly invested by the libido. It would seem obvious that parents indeed make their appearance on the recording surface of desiring production. But this is in fact the crux of the entire Oedipal problem. What are the precise forces that cause the Oedipal triangulation to close up? Under what conditions does this triangulation divert desire so that it flows across a surface within a narrow channel that is not a natural confirmation of this surface? How does it form a type of inscription for experiences and the workings of mechanisms that extend far beyond it in every direction? It is in this sense, and this sense only, that, that the child relates the breast as a partial object to the person of his mother and constantly watches the expression of his mother's face. The word, the word relate, in this case, does not designate a natural productive relationship, but rather a relation in the sense of a report or an account, an inscription within an overall process of inscription with the Newman, within the Newman. From his very earliest infancy, the child has a wide 
wide-ranging life of desire, a whole set of non-familial relations with the objects and the machines of desire that is not related to the parents from the point of view of immediate production, but that is ascribed to them with either love or hatred from the point of view of the recording of these, from the point of view of the recording of the process and in accordance with the very special conditions of this recording, including the effect of these conditions upon the process itself. Feedback. Okay. Yeah. So there's some questions in the chat, like, uh, mm -hmm. namely, can we define the Newman here? So if we remember correctly, there were three terms associated. Yeah. yeah uh, so the, the term libido, they take from Freud and they associate that with the production of connection or the production of production. And then the production of dis disjunctions, they take this term from Rudolf Otto uh, called the Newman which actually he gets from Kant. And then they take the other term for the production of uh, conjunctions, uh, the voluptus. And so right. here the Newman relates to the surface of the body without organs where the disjunctions are recorded. All right. It's uh, the record, the recording process, right? Which yeah. goes uh, directly with the, the nature and the direction flows, right? Yeah. Um, the other thing in this paragraph that really stood out to me was their uh, insistence on um, avoiding talk of relations as being natural, because right. I think this idea of natural is going to truck back in any sort of notion of uh, a natural order, as we talked about in the Mark Fisher uh, discussion. And I think I think Mark Fisher and, and Deleuze and Gattari are working by the same definition of of nature and natural order in that sense. Um, but the other thing too is by by presupposing natural, then okay, maybe there are some objects that have a nature to them and therefore are global in some sense. Right, and um, I've just forgotten what I wanted to say. So. Uh, Maybe we continue and then um, I think a lot of these things are just uh, reiterations and maybe uh, poetic prescriptions of what has already been said. Yeah, no. we're, we're starting to sum up. I think some of the, the, the real juice in this section comes right at the end. So we'll, we'll try to get there. Um, I'll, I'll continue. It is amid partial objects and within the non-familial relations of desiring production that the child lives his life and ponders what it means to live even though the question must be related to his parents and only possible tentative answer must be sought in family relations. Quote, I remember ever since I was eight years old and even before that, I always wondered who I was, what I was, and why I was alive. I remember that at the age of six on a house on the Boulevard de la Blancarde in Marseille, number 29 to be precise, just as I was eating my afternoon snack, a chocolate bar that a certain woman known as my mother gave to me, I asked myself what it meant to exist, to be alive, what it meant to be conscious of oneself breathing. 
And I remember that I wanted to inhale myself in order to prove that I was alive and to see if I liked being alive and if so, why. That is the crucial point. A question occurs to the child that will perhaps be related to the woman known as my mommy. But that is not formulated in terms of her, but rather produced within the interplay of desiring machines at the level, for example, of the mouth air machine or the tasting machine. What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be a br- uh, to breathe? What am I? What sort of thing is this breathing machine on my body without organs? I think this is a, a fantastic um, uh excerpt or basically a fantastic right. note on their on on the meaning of life for Deleuze um and guitar. what's very interesting to me is that psychoanalysis always prides itself upon uh, recovering some of the repressed memories right by reading this and seeing how Deleuze and Gattari interpret maybe a, a five or six year old child having these um complex non-relational thoughts right it always mm-hmm. makes me think does in psychoanalysis in this same revolutionary way that it recovers these uh, repressed sexual memories with regards to the mother and the father, etc. Doesn't it at the same time choose what memories, quote unquote, to bring back? Right. And yeah. it definitely does. And this is why we, we are quick to we're quick to disregard. Right. Any kind of notion of a such a young child having these kind of thoughts when we are quick to maybe approve of, uh, or maybe to agree with the, this Freudian theory of a child having sexual thoughts regarding his mother, right? Her mother. Yeah. And also there's an affirmation of the, the kind of immediacy that comes with the child asking the question of what it means to be alive. Um, a question that's prompted by something like inhaling the air or, or tasting a chocolate bar or just feeling what it's like to be in one's own skin. And without that, that question or that, that sensation, that memory being mediated by anything other than the experience itself. I mean, clearly to, to form any kind of meaning whatsoever, it, some sort of disjunction must occur. I mean, even if, if we're to render it in language, but I really love how uh, Deleuze and Gattari's example here highlights that there is an aspect to life and existence, uh, which does not entirely depend on some globalized form of meaning. Um, and it, it brings us back to the sort of raw functioning of, of desire and, and honors that place without reducing it to something like Oedipus or any Oedipalized figure um, that doesn't have Oedipus by name, namely God, states, nations, family, races, genders, or, or what have you. All right, so maybe we go on further? Yeah, please. Yeah, feel free to continue. Okay. So... Where are we at? Uh-huh. The, the so, child. So, yeah. The child is a metaphysical being. As in the case of the Cartesian Cogito, parents have nothing to do with these questions. And we are guilty of an error when we confuse the fact that this question is, is related to the parents in the sense of being recounted or communicated to them with the notions that it is related to them in the sense of a fundamental connection with them. By boxing the life of the child up within the Oedipus complex, by making familial relations the universal 
humiliation of childhood, we cannot help but fail to understand the production of the unconscious itself and the collective mechanisms that have an immediate, immediate bearing on the, on the unconscious. In particular, the entire interplay between primal psychic repression, the desiring machines, and the body without organs. For the unconscious is an orphan and produces itself within the identity of nature and man. The anti-production of the unconscious suddenly became evident when the subject of the Cartesian Cogito realized that it had no parents. When the socialist thinker discovered the unity of man and nature within the process of production, and when the cycle discovers its independence from an indefinite parental regression, to quote Artaud once again, I got no pap papa mommy. Right. Yeah. And um, the, the point that they want to make here is uh, the notion of the families is, to me, is clearly under attack. Um, right. you know, when it comes to uh, Descartes, you know, juxtaposing the, the example of Descartes and the socialist thinker, um, realizing that how is it that um, a self or something like a society comes about? Well, it comes about through a process of production. Of some right. kind. Now, granted, you know, for Deleuze and Gattari, um, uh, in Deleuze in particular, there's there's problems with with Descartes' notion, but um, nonetheless, it's it's as if Descartes um, sort of um, created a revolution uh, in thinking about how it is that anyone comes to understand themselves as anything. anyone else want to get in I, I i think there's some other folks on here who've been unmuted and maybe they want to ask questions or deliver some commentary on their own. i have one in particular question just it's just maybe a little bit okay um what i'm getting what i'm trying to wrap my head around is this idea that there is a independent sovereign consciousness away from familial structure and i feel there's this tension that 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 this i'm not sure if i'm getting it correct but i feel there is we're kind of losing you again taking am i is my mind yeah, she, we're kind of losing you again yeah so maybe type it up and then i can read it and address it again mm -hmm. i mean uh, your mic is breaking up all the time Mm. Okay. Moving on. Go ahead. I'll go ahead. Okay. Uh, anybody else have something? Yeah. And please go ahead and type that up, uh, Afshin. While he's typing, this is Jack of Hearts. Can you hear me? Oh, hey. Oh, hey. Yeah. yeah. Yay. <laughs> nice to meet you. Oh, nice to meet you. Okay. Yeah, nice to meet you. So you're 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 ready for your debut. Uh, actually, um, why don't we move on? Because uh, uh, a lot of Maybe this, Jack of yeah, you can pick up the uh, next paragraph on page 49. From uh, We Have Seen, correct? Yes, that's right. Thank you. <clears throat> we have seen how a confusion arose between the two meanings of process, that is, process is the metaphysical production of the demonical within nature and process of social production of desiring machines within history. 
Neither social relations nor metaphysical relations constitute an afterward or a beyond. The role of such relations must be recognized in all psychopathological processes, and their importance will be all the greater when we are dealing with psych psychotic syndromes that will appear to be the most animal-like and the most desocialized. It is in the child's very first days of life in the most elementary behavior patterns of the suckling babe that these relations within partial objects with the agents of production, with the factors of anti-production are woven in accordance with the laws of desiring production as a whole. By failing from the beginning to see what the precise nature of this desiring production is and how, under what conditions, and in response to what pressures, the Oedipal triangulation plays a role in the recording of the process. We find ourselves trapped in the net of a diffuse, generalized Oedipalism that radically distorts the life of the child and his later development, the neurotic and psychotic problems of the adult and sexuality as a whole. Let us keep D.H. Lawrence's reaction to psychoanalysis in mind and never forget it. In Lawrence's case, at least his reservations with regard to psychoanalysis did not stem from terror at having discovered what real sexuality was, but he had the impression, the purely instinctive impression, that psychoanalysis was shutting sexuality up in a bizarre sort of box, painted with bourgeois motives in a kind of rather repugnant artificial triangle, thereby stifling the whole of sexuality as production of desire, so as to recast it along entirely different lines, making of it making of it a dirty little secret, the dirty little family secret, a private theater, rather than the fantastic factory of nature and production. Lawrence had the impression that sexuality possessed more power or more potentiality than that. And though psychoanalysis may perhaps have managed to disinfect the dirty little secret, the dreary, dirty little secret of Oedipus the modern tyrant benefited very little from having thus been disinfected. Testing. Test. You're fine, Kent. I mean, I can hear you. Yeah. You there? Um, yeah, so, um, so Jack of Hearts, what do you think? Hello. There's nobody speaking. There's some mic problems, it seems. Well, I'll I'll just start by saying. Uh, I just wanted to ask a quick quick question, but it's like not related to this chapter in particular, but just there is in this book. Yeah, go ahead. Right. Uh, it's just uh, in reading, because uh, like I haven't read the whole book at all, but um, it's just reading the Reader's Guide. Um, Bouchanan's, I think that's his name. Uh, uh, Buchanan. Buchanan, uh, Buchanan yeah. sorry. Uh, he talks about how uh, the concept of desire production uh, contradicts, uh, first of all, like uh, Frugian psychoanalysis and psychoanalysis in general. I got that. But I don't understand how it contradicts uh, Marxism and the notion of ideology. That was my main question. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's 
That's that's a big question. Um, Let's if you don't mind, let's pick that up in the last 15 minutes. We can probably finish the text pretty soon. Um, Yeah, no worries. No worries. Just uh, tell me uh, when are the last 15 minutes? So I'll come back. In 15 minutes. In 15 minutes. But, okay. Uh, maybe you can join us uh, tomorrow in the recap and ask the same question because we tried to go over some of the unanswered questions. But what I would like to say, just off right off the bat, there is no ideology for doing uh, the in Antiochus. They, uh, even though they uh, they are in constant dialogue with Marx. So to say, and, and this dialogue is obvious, right? They don't uh, expand upon the notion of ideology. Okay, thank you. But I'll be back in 15 minutes. Sure, right. yeah. Okay. So maybe um, I can finish this off? Um, I just want to highlight quickly right, uh, right. this this word, uh, this phrase, dirty little secret, will come up again mm-hmm. in their work. Um, and basically it refers to the fact that the the notion of the family and the reduction to the family obscures the whole of dire, desiring production. And this is what psychoanalysis knows inherently, but refuses to admit to, because if if this were to come up uh, or if this were to be revealed, it would explode the the institution of psychoanalysis. So if we cast this at a historical level, it's Mm -hmm. to actually put it into the private. So basically it's casting sexuality into the private sphere and there's a whole realm of knowledge and its correlative institutions that are being That's questioned right. within this idea. And anytime that we allow ourselves to be conditioned by the notion that sexuality is confined to these familial structures, um, we, we become repressed. Um, and not only that, we become primed to be further caught in the, the psycho, psychoanalytic snare. Um, this is what drives people to go back to therapy again and again and again. Um, if we're looking at therapy strictly in Freudian terms, that's certainly the case. Um, as we move forward in our reading of Antioedipus, I will argue that um, many forms of therapy, if not all, contain this germ of uh, of Oedipus. You know, insofar as we seek out a master or someone uh, to whom we subordinate our desires or to explain to us or interpret them. I think that's totally true. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's also mm-hmm. like have you, if you read, you know, uh, the book Siddhartha by Herman Hess, right? His uh-huh. own search of like trying to find a master. And then he's like, no, that's not what I need to be doing at all. Right. And, and let and me maybe, just say, um, oh, go ahead, Andrew, but I, I'll, I'll get something in after you. Right. I just wanted to pose a question that uh, they're not here. They're, they're not there posed in the comments, uh, in the discussion chat. Right. He says, in quotes from the book, we find ourselves trapped in the net of diffuse, generalized edipalism that radically distorts the life of the child and its later development, the neurotic and psychotic problems of the adult and sexuality as a whole, unquote. And then he asks, when we say Oedipalism, do we mean the ontological framework used to practically approach the child neurosis, psychosis, and the adult, or something else? So, I don't see it as a strictly ontological framework. It's a framework which uh, deals a lot more with the the, the praxis of psychoanalysis. But if we... uh, 
change this term ontological. I think everyone, everything else is right. I mean, I mean, everything else is spot on. I think. Yeah, I, and I think you know Craig was also saying before that like Oedipus can really be it's really generalized to all sorts of triangulations, any sorts, you know, race, gender, right? It's kind of like Oedipus is this name that they've put on this common uh, phenomenon of uh, repressive triangulization and. Yeah. yeah, and if we if we follow what what Gattari says about in his essay, every one of us wants to be a fascist. Um, they'll say that under capitalism, that these despotic tendencies or these totalizing tendencies get dispersed into the social field, um, and there's an argument that can be made that psychoanalysis has ushered in the notion that um, a kind of localized micro level despotism is possible under capitalism. I mean, this is essentially their argument. Uh, How do we get trained in it? Well, first it, it comes through the family. And then when we go to places like our job or um, or if we seek help to deal with trauma, we do so in ways that that mirror the the microcosm of the family. There has to be a leader. There's somebody who's in charge, somebody who gets, says what goes and that sort of thing. Um, and so that's how structures uh, institutions themselves um, become edipalizing. They, they inherit the figure of Oedipus from psychoanalysis, which has been passed down from generations of other um, forms of society. Right. And so, uh, oh, then the other point yeah. that I just wanted to make very quickly is, uh, you know, some of us were talking about, you know, eventually formulating a response to Jordan Peterson and his book. What is it? The, the 12 pillars of the 12 virtues. I haven't read the book, but I, I, I know roughly what they are. Uh, I think one of the things that needs to to be um, brought into that project is this notion of abolishing Oedipus, first and foremost. And, and going back to what I said about um, a new ethics, it needs to admit to the fragmentary nature of, of desiring production of, of the way that we experience our desires. Those would be the sort of base pillars, if you will, you know, not to extend the sort of root analogy, but those have to be factored into, to that ethics. Um, I just wanted to uh, bring in this discussion from the chat about kind of we're talking about how to think about um, Oedipalization and Jack of Hearts asked if it's like a box where we take sexual objects or experiences and place them in this box by marking it. And um, I said that I think it's kind of more like a set of coordinates. And I think those are very two similar views. The difference is that we can think of ourselves as outside of the box. And I think the problem of Oedipalization is, is that we are placing ourselves inside of the box and coordinating our own lives uh, from the inside of this box or triangle instead of uh, breaking um, apart. Yeah. And in chapter two, they're going to go into detail. Um, there's five, or I think there's five paralogisms of desire, maybe six, five, I think it is. Uh, paralogisms of desire, meaning what are the ways in which desire are able to be trapped? You know, what are the errors of desire, in other words? And they'll talk about this in relationship to psychoanalysis, but these can be applied more generally to any um, act of self-subjection, and, and, and I mean, I hesitate to use the word self because we can presuppose the self in our own critique of it. 
Um, and and they they are certainly avoiding that word. Um, but anyway, uh, that lies ahead. That certainly lies ahead in their critique. Yeah. So right, has we, anybody who hasn't read yet want to take on the last paragraph? Sure. Oh, well, Doug, why don't you hit it? Right. Okay. You had to pick one, so <laughs> maybe finish it off. Is it possible that by taking the path that it has, psychoanalysis is reviving an age-old tendency to humble us, to demean us, and to make us feel guilty? Foucault has noted that the relationship between madness and the family can be traced back in large part to a development that affected the whole of bourgeois society in the 19th century. The family was entrusted with functions that became the measuring rod of the responsibility of its members and their possible guilt. Insofar as psychoanalysis cloaks insanity in the mantle of a quote-unquote parental complex and regards the patterns of self-punishment resulting from Oedipus as a confession of guilt, its theories are not at all radical or innovative. On the contrary, it is completing the task begun by 19th century psychology, namely to develop a moralized familial discourse of mental pathology linking madness to the, quote, half-real, half-imaginary dialectic of the family, unquote, deciphering within it, quote, the unending attempt of, to murder the father, the dull thud of instincts hammering at the solidity of the family as an institution and at its most archaic symbols, unquote. Hence, instead of participating in an undertaking that will bring about genuine liberation, psychoanalysis is taking part in the work of bourgeois repression at its most far-reaching level, that is to say, keeping European humanity harnessed to the yoke of daddy-mommy and making no effort to do away with this problem once and for all. all right. Mic drop. Can we get a applause? Yay, <laughs> we did it. Chapter one. Yeah, we did it. it was well, what's really uh, ironic for me is uh, how many psychoanalysts uh, tried to distance themselves from this uh, psychological framework, from, from this psychological tradition, right, which was deemed psychology. But what was funny is that they, according to Zuzina Perry, fell back to this, say, moralizing theory, right? And uh, even though I don't fully agree with this, that psychoanalysis has fell on the level of psychology, right? Maybe it is something that happens, right? Today, especially psychology takes the guise of this moralizing kind of <clears throat> self-help, you know, uh, structure. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting because um, I make some immediate connections to the word guilt. Um, and the the suggestion here is that guilt is going to play a huge role in repression, um, the invocation of guilt, the acting upon guilt, the opera, opera, operationalization. <laughs> oh my God, I can't speak. Operationalizing guilt uh, in such a way as to um, enact a structure and enact machines of, of, of oppression. And um, I mean, just some immediate examples come to mind. I mean, I. Here I am bringing back the Jordan Peterson thing, but just the notion that you need to um, have your room clean or stand up straight, you know, as as a as a way to mitigate the sort of uncertainty or ennui that anyone experiences in these worlds. And like Brooks is saying, look, 
having an organized environment is, is very useful. But when the, the notion of being organized or being stood up straight or being positioned in a certain way um, is used as a political tactic through which to construct you as a subject, well, now we can use that to do other things, too. And it, it's I mean, I it should, it. We, we should be able to make connections for anyone trying to um, fight against. And I mean, this is a challenge that I've had in my own life. Um, is just struggling against the notion of guilt. And there's ways in which we can tarry with our own sense of guilt, it seems, that can enable op oppression and, and our own repression. I mean, I think of all of those people who don't want to be an incel or a beta or whatever the case may be. And so they work out and they do this and, and they, they basically engender all the significations, at least here in America, of, of being someone who is strong beneath that 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 veneer of uh, of of putative strength is desperation and beneath that desperation is a deep-seated guilt i believe um and so when we we choose to self-subjugate um i i think you know one of the, the the big operators is how has guilt been operationalized and deployed against us as political subjects I mean, I think guilt is kind of one of those counterflows that the body of organs establishes, right? Yeah, say more about that. I mean, I see it, guilt is like kind of uh, something that is produced to uh, repress creative flow and flow to. And um, to um, sorry, I'm getting a little echo there. Uh, there. Uh, I'll, I'll try to find, I'll it. Try to go, find just it. Just go ahead, Doug. I'll find it. Yeah, no, it was just a made my train of thought interrupt. Um, you were talking about usually, uh, guilt as a kind of counterflow. Sorry, yes. usually uh, guilt is uh, uh, contrasted with shame, and uh, in a, you know, in 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 like anthropology and sociology, uh, one of the things they do is they talk about the relationship between shame societies and guilt societies. Oh, say more about the difference. Japan, yeah. I mean, one of the things that they say is that Japan is more of a shame society than a guilt society. Western, Western societies are more guilt societies. Right, right. Because uh, one is centered on the individual and the other, the other one is centered on the collective. So the priority changes. So the modality of control will change as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's I say both of them. Whether whether you blame yourself or whether you're keyed up to uh, is are other people blaming you? I mean, I'd say both of those are the sorts of counterflows that I'm talking about. Where uh, you know these are psychological uh, milieus that we somehow find ourselves in that cause us to behave in certain ways that uh, aren't really what we want to do for one reason or another. Right. Because the reason you feel it in the first place is because there's something else there first that you want to do. Yeah. I mean, Nietzsche talks about um, and I think Deleuze makes mention of this somewhere. Too. Nietzsche talks about how uh, prisoners will will not admit their guilt. In fact, um, the the entire justice system in Western society is structured in such a way to produce a failure of acknowledgement from the criminal. And I've seen this firsthand. I can't tell you how many criminals will try to explain away 
you know, their guilt and, and why it is that they're in jail. And I don't want to romanticize the criminal. I mean, there, there's people who are in jail and in prison who are doing horrible, horrible things to people. Uh, but the question is, our apparatus of, of discipline and our, our apparatus of, of, of correction, mediation, uh, functions in such a way as to exacerbate that failure to acknowledge. And I would say that that failure to acknowledge guilt is also a function of guilt in and of itself, right? It, it's, it's a relationship of it, a disavowal of it that produces the criminal subject. And it also produces a kind of, um, subjectivity more generally in which people attempt to, uh, make an appeal, uh, in such a way as, as to say that they, they are not guilty. I, I am, I am not like the others who are guilty. I am not lesser. I am, you know, I'm one of the chosen ones. I'm in the in crowd, right? Guilt is at play and, and all of those social dynamics. Right here. Guilt is a, a, a objective fact as opposed to a, a, a subjective emotion. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think it's both, right? I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're talking about real instances of, of individuals feeling guilt. But, um, yeah, I think more generally too, is like the the question is how does this notion of guilt function in a collective sense? Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So Baron asked the question about whether the buy without organs should refer also to an increase of creativity. And I think that the answer is yes, but there's like sorts of different levels and kinds of buys without organs. And like sometimes what they think is creative, we might think is like destroying us because there's the whole uh, kind of misapprehension. The body without organs thinks it's being oppressed. Right. Yeah, we are now uh, 10 minutes shy or what, 13 minutes shy of two o'clock. I would say at this time, it's a free for all. Like um, right. we're going to have a review session, uh, but maybe we can just sort of lodge some comments about chapter one in general, uh, lingering issues, things that you learned along the way. How has this chapter and one it just been? occurred to me um, how effectively we dealt with the couple of first chapters and a couple of first sections of the first chapter because um, this last these last two chapters have really been a breeze and I think it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been so if we weren't so adamant about uh, some of the concepts we uh, were talking about earlier right if we didn't yeah, get a good grasp yeah. on them from the beginning maybe this wouldn't have been so easy right yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I struggled things. with section two uh, and then, you know, kind of was behind on section three and four a little bit. But I feel like with section five and six, I've caught up in and understanding this uh, all again. Yeah. I think this is kind of funny because you would almost think that in a conventional text, this would be reversed. Like these sections would be at the beginning and then you'd have the other stuff that we read from the beginning of the book after but yeah, you know, yeah. it, it's sort of yeah, because this part is a lot more clear and a lot more you know, they're, they're mounting their direct attack on what they see as the flaws of psychoanalysis. And, you know, retroactively, everything kind of makes sense. But I think it is sort of I'm, I'm struggling. I've mentioned a few times in the, in the discussion, I've struggled my way. I'm almost done with the chapter three of difference and repetition. And I would say 90 percent of it is completely over my head. But one thing I do really appreciate about his discussion of what how thinking works 
in his view and Deleuze's view has to do with this idea of intensities and of things, you know, thought not being something that you can just initiate voluntarily by uniting your faculties and choosing to focus on something. Um, and it is, you know, it's a, it's a truism, I guess, cause we've been saying it all along, but this text is written in a way that is almost like the encounter that he talks about in that chapter of it's sort of to force you to think by putting you through these different intensities and giving you a sensibility of what is being discussed rather than sort of spelling everything out for you. And it's quite a torturous process, but I feel yeah really grateful that we've done it in the way we have. And, and it, I do feel on a better ground to continue from here. Right. I feel the same. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Uh, just on back, uh, just to ask my same question, I took uh, the Buganan, if that's how you say it, a uh, bit that w- interested me. So it's at the start. It's um, He says, um, second, against uh, when he talks about the notion of, uh, of production, uh, desire production, he says, uh, against the uh, orthodoxy of Marxism, it means that desire has no need of the deceptions of ideology in order to invest the social. Yeah. Um, well, I would say the first thing is that what with, How are we then? Yeah, right. with with when it comes to Marx and ideology, the the challenge that Deleuze and Gattari point out is that ideology um, represents. Well, <laughs> the problem is, is that ideology represents. Period. And what I mean by that is, uh, ideology is seen as a derivative that that lies outside of the field of actual production. It's a mask, or it's seen as uh, a way of obscuring production in such a way. But. Um, what Deleuze and Gattari are going to say is that the, the function of language and ideas in a productive milieu is also productive. And, you know, this isn't to say that ideology is somehow true, but they're going to say that it's productive. It, it isn't just the effervescence or the sort of the stratosphere of the base of the economic base. It's actually part of it. And there, there are more details that I just don't have. Could you explain, sorry, when you say it's part of it, how, uh, yeah, just explain, please. Um, so, for example, um, let's take a look at Deleuze and Gattari's theory of language. It's not that I, ideas have in and of themselves just information, right? Um, there's a function of language that they derive from J.L. Austin's work on language called the... Uh, illocutionary act. And so language does things beyond just informing. Language has the capacity to actually enact, create, install. Uh, the example that they use is the um, is deeming someone guilty inside the courtroom. Upon the judge being able to, first of all, not anybody can, can uh, render someone guilty. They have to have a a certain privileged position in our society. Namely, they have to be a judge. And so by me going out and just pointing the finger and say, hey, you're guilty of this crime, that doesn't do it. But in a certain context and given a certain set of redundancies, meaning like, look, we have this space in which we perform a trial. The judge wears these kind of clothes. Um, The gavel is dropped, you know, a certain proceeding takes place. And upon that proceeding concluding, the jury comes out and they deliver this verdict. 
whereby the judge affirms that verdict and guilt is is conferred upon that person. Um, language in this instance does nothing uh, doesn't do anything to explicitly inform, but it it actually produces what they call an incorporeal transformation. Um, so this is just one facet of of Deleuze and Guattari's theory of language. But what they're going to say this this function of language isn't ideological, right? It's performative. And there's ways in which what we perceive to be ideas are actually performances that produce things in a productive milieu. I mean, just look at the at at the news these days uh, and look at the way, for example, that Trump um, in the United States uh, will will say something that's either absolutely untrue or absolutely ludicrous. And then walk it back a few days later, um, just basically gaslighting the entire nation night after night on the news. And what it's doing is it's producing this this notion of truth or, quote unquote, truthiness, if you will, that um, that actually isn't true whatsoever. But it has the effect of like an Orwellian doublespeak. And in this sense, language is actually producing an affect and it's having real consequences for material production in the in the the sphere of what we would call the restricted economy. Like like Kent was saying, like what we understand to be the economy in terms of of cash, capital and numbers. Um, so it, it's not that that ideology in the Marxist sense is merely, oh, here's just a, a set of ideas that people believe in that obscures the nature of production. No, that's that's not quite it. Language has a productive function, and here's how it works. And so I just highlighted one of the ways that Deleuze and Guattari go into that, but I, there's there's a lot more to it. They they, they bring the, this notion up of anti-ideology all over anti-Oedipus and, and other places too. Thank you very much. It's really appreciated. Oh, sure. Yeah. And if you have questions, but you can um, email me directly or put it in the chat uh, attention to me and and I'll link you those texts that I'm looking at. Yeah, and please put them in the chat, put them in the follow up questions rubric, because we will be addressing them tomorrow directly. And okay. uh, yeah. we'll do. Are you all American? Because it kind of surprises me that so much like when you go on the Internet, Uh, Wikipedia articles are better, like for French postmodern philosophers. I find that like they're better in English than in French, which is very funny. I don't know why you like postmodernism so much. Well, yeah, I think there's just like a recent English. wave of interest in it. I think it's just a very recent really? because uh, whenever I want to find out something about a French theorist's life, I go to the French page and then I Google Translate. What's what's going on? Uh, yeah. Because like for for um, Felix Guattari and like just for the anti Oedipus book, the Wikipedia page is better in English than in French. Yeah, that page is fairly small though, isn't it? Even the English one. But also that's what we were discussing last night, being French Canadian as well. And reading in French, for me, I go to English versions or English readers to uh, to understand some of the ideas of Deleuze because they're not rendered in the same way. And some, sometimes yeah. they're being simplified in English and it's really easier for us to understand them. And then we can go back to French and we're like, oh, okay, it was this, you know? Yeah, do the same. Yeah. And also... It's a specific also, era, no? When uh, stuff came uh, over. I don't think it's recent. I think it has, it's had an effect on the academy in the West since like the 70s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because when, think, when you are in North America in a university, uh, which is in contact with uh, English-speaking people, 
which is not the case for Quebec, for example. But um, it's it's being influenced by the way of thinking that emerged from specific translation. So basically, if you come from like a real uh, French background and like French reading and you haven't read anything in English, uh, everything becomes really strange. You know, all the American versions, you know, if you even go into Bruno Latour and those people, which are French, uh, it's like they're they're they've been going back and forth between, you know, the um, the languages, but also the system of sense. So everything becomes entangled and it differentiates itself because of this context. Can I make um, a, a complete attempt? Oh, go ahead, Park Bench. Uh, I was going to make a sort of tangential proposal, so I just uh, maybe if you have something relevant to say. No, say. go for it. Um, this is the free for all time. I was just going to say, you know, when we were talking about the guilt uh, discussion and thinking about how that manifests itself, I, I just think and while we can save this for another discussion. But one thing that I found really fascinating that I just stumbled upon uh, as somebody who's kind of like mildly in, you know, interested in gaming communities and stuff. There's a channel that has cropped up in the last few months called healthygamer.gg. And it's run by this Harvard sort of like psychiatrist guy who I think appears to be going completely out of his professional like ethics you know, requirements and all kinds of Hippocratic oaths and things like that to do this. But essentially he started to run online streaming therapy sessions with game streamers but the reason i'm bringing this up is two things number one he is a dedicated zealot of certain like dogmas of hindu dharma so he brings that a lot into his therapy but also because the theme of guilt and repression comes up a lot and there is this kind of interesting weird pseudo-edipalized thing that happens in all of the you know, the, the, the streams that are almost like a Dr. Phil kind of moment where he's like, ah, oh, that's what it is. That's what your real problem is. Anyway, I'm only bringing it up because I thought it might actually be really interesting as a primary text for us to like watch some of these things and have some discussions on them because it's a very fresh and relevant thing to thinking about technology, how it's affecting young people that he has a bunch of things with incels as well of like talking about why they feel the way they do and trying to sort of like de-radicalize them. Anyway, it's a, it's a, it's a side thing, but I just thought I'd mention that before I forget, because I thought it might be interesting for folks. I think you have a point there, because we must remember that uh, everything that uh, Deleuze and Guitari wrote at the time was in reaction to uh, psychiatry. So they're engaged into anti-psychiatry, into, you know, recognizing the the productive aspects of a person's lives instead of like trying to fix by addressing the, li the life and the psychological state of the person into a negative manner. So, and, and this whole disciplining of the self was to serve the industry at the time. So there's, there's all those link and the way that their political uh, commentary that became philosophical uh, upon this, uh, this subject is, is linked to, a strong ideological position within their own society. And I think that what you're bringing in right now is uh, the contemporary manifestation of this, you know, shaming and like trying to change people and like fixing them. And I think that would be interesting to see something that is, is contemporary, contemporary to it. I think it's also, it's kind of interesting because it's a hybrid thing. I've watched some of these things and you see the comments and you can clearly see 
and I, I work with young people. I've said that before in these stream, uh, these conversations, like you can clearly see there's a class of people who are very much being helped by it. But I almost wonder if the people who are being helped are not the person actually on the stream who's being, you know, adipalized in front of thousands of people, but all the people who are able to watch it. It's really, it's really, really interesting. And uh, it's also interesting for being unorthodox, for being like an attempt to, because he critiques a lot of Western models of the mind and stuff like that. But it, I'm, anyway, I'll throw a link into it. And it's, it's quite popular amongst the younger people and gamers right now. So I think well, it'd be the, interesting the, to analyze. The, the gaming thing is fascinating. It's a, a friend of mine, uh, Dendi, is a big Dota 2 gamer, and he started a new team. And one of the things we were focusing on is uh, that esports doesn't have performance psychiatry the same way that classic sports teams do. Uh, performance coaches, I think, is actually what they tend to call them, even though it's really performance psychiatry. And it's a, it's a really interesting place that no one is playing right now, and there's a lot of very interesting people from a lot of directions. Uh, the healthy gamer thing is is always been interesting for me to watch, but it's it's uh, I'm not quite as into it as I think some people are. Yeah, and and also I mean uh, the Luz and Gatari later are going to talk about the role of the uh, or basically the the psychoanalytic milieu being this sort of master disciple relationship and. I think we should always be suspicious. I mean, just in general, even not having read Deleuze and Gattari, anytime a sort of cult of personality is building up around any figure, especially one who purports to have the answers for your anxiety and depression, right? And this isn't to say that they're not bringing good advice. Like, I mean, if you look at Scientology, like there, there's some premises in Scientology, like, oh, that's that's kind of interesting. But it ultimately leads you into this relationship with the institution that slowly or even sometimes quickly extracts all your money. And, you know, they have people hunt you down if you try to leave the movement. I mean, it's just crazy. You should yeah. watch uh, uh, interviews of Jacques-Alain Miller, if you know him. He's like, you yeah. know him, I think. Uh, but so like uh, when you attack psychoanalysis or like the text or anything, like he gets really defensive and he's, it's always stuff like, oh, it's the bad translation. Oh, this text is an exception. Oh, this text, you know, it's like they really stress it out. Yeah. I mean, what's the but, point here? Oh, the point is... Uh, terms of cult of personality like it's really shocking oh, to see right, even right, the greatest Jacques Alain Miller is considered the biggest Lacanian today right, right, he right. doesn't even dare to put uh, again um, how do we say in uh, restudy uh, basic text as soon as you ask him a question and say maybe that's not true that's trash right. and like he's like no 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 it's a translation or you know yeah and, and I'm sorry I, I, will, I would like to uh, Sorry, I would like to point something because you mentioned uh, Scientology. Uh, Ronabert was into the movement in, of anti-psychiatry as well. And there's a lot of occult and esoteric stuff that happened around the same time. And Deleuze and Guattari were, they, they were in proximity with this. So all of this stems from the same uh, contestation of the system. And it's really interesting to see like all the background link and whatever happened because uh, even in Scientology in the US, like a lot of Deleuze's uh, teams are being uh, taken again. So that's an interesting, maybe for another day, but like uh, it's something that I found out like a few years ago and uh, I was kind of shocked about it. 
Yeah, the uh, L. Ron Hubbard was right there with Foucault and Deleuze and the anti-psychiatry movement back when that was popular. Yeah, um, but I feel that the anti-psychiatry movement in Europe, uh, the seventies, didn't really catch on in France, and maybe some of you French people here um, can correct me if I'm wrong. But but some of the countries, and some of the other other countries in Europe, which were also invested in the movement, uh, made much more progress. Let's say Italy, like Bazaglia and and other militants. I think a really interesting sort of performance or performative anti uh, master uh, philosophy that we could do is hold a, f- a funeral for our masters in some sort of uh, kind of public space as a sort of exercise of Deleuzean ethics. Um, yeah, the, the destruction of the despotic signifier for each one of us. Um, I don't know. It could be interesting. Just a warehouse full of empty caskets or something. I don't know. <laughs> uh, just uh, another quick question, but like, because I heard that uh, that word a lot. It's uh, deterritorialization. What is it? Or if you don't want to answer, you're totally allowed. Oh no, sure. Um, Andrew, do you want to pick that one up? Um, pick up what? Sorry. Oh, the what is deterritorialization? Oh, great! Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally. Yeah. You can do all the well, heavy lifting if you want. Right. I mean, I don't know. I don't like to give definitions of this kind, but maybe maybe you can try. Okay, maybe work it backwards from an example. So uh, deterritorialization is happening all the time under capitalism. Um, Here would be uh, just a couple of examples. I mean... um, for example, right now, shopping malls in the United States aren't, I mean, clearly under coronavirus, they're not being as, as wide as they once were. But it seems that there's been a paradigm shift in the way that um, it, Americans perceive uh, the shopping experience. I mean, a lot of things have moved to online. I know here in Los Angeles, I mean, there are shopping malls, but as, as I understand it, Like the shopping experience is now going to places like Walmart or Target or uh, in some places, boutiques. So this notion of the shopping mall is, um, you know, it's it's a descendant sort of a notion right now. What does that mean? Well, the experience of being a consumer has moved from one locality to another. So in order for capital to flourish, uh, you know, and evolve, Uh, the shopping experience has changed. So the shoppers themselves and the products themselves have left the actual environment of the shopping mall and moved into these new places, Amazon distribution centers, superstore, Walmart superstores, Sam's clubs, and and those sorts of places. Uh, That would be a very specific instance of deterritorialization, capital leaving one actual physical locality and moving it to another, commodities leaving one place and going to another. Now, this happens all the time in the world of, of signs and language. I was talking with my wife the other day. At one point, you bought a pair of Converse sneakers uh, or Nike sneakers, <laughs> maybe based on the quality of the shoe or like, well, that's just what everybody's wearing. But then at some point, the popularity of those shoes um, in, involved a, um, a hyper identification with the brand to the point where the name of the actual brand came off the shoe and came onto the sweatshirt and in, you know, in a sort of enlarged fashion to the point where it's not the shoe or the commodity itself that became 
um, the, the object of desire, but the actual brand name itself. So there was a deterritorialization from the commodity as a material object to the actual brand name signifier. So um, just in terms of thinking about deterritorialization under capitalism, it's the movement of capital. It's the movement of um, uh, our our perception of of what is a commodity is 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 in a constant sort of flux. Uh, the way that space the the way that spaces change under capitalism is also a kind of deterritorialization. I mean, even for example, like when we clear cut a forest, uh, that's a kind of deter deterritorialization under the the idea that oh, there's a demand for products made of this kind of wood. We're going to cut down the forest. Boom. What happens? Well, now we've displaced thousands upon thousands of species. We've we've permanently changed that environment. Um, and now the, the species who once inhabited this forest, either they die off or they go into other sectors of quote unquote nature. And that constitutes a kind of deterritorialization and then a subsequent re-territorialization of forces in uh, on new lands. Um, I hope my sort of improvised meandering dialogue some 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 insight into the meaning thank of that. you very much once again okay it does, it does make sense at the macro level if you want something you know um uh Deleuze and Guattari and the thousand plateau they're referring to the uh, orchid and the wasp and uh because the 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 orchid deterritorializes itself to uh open a junction with the wasp and then the wasp deterritorializes itself to the flower, so an equivalent of this would be the passage into the ritual of marriage. You are a child, the son of somebody, and within the marriage, you become wife or husband. So basically, you're espousing a new symbolic form and you're responding to that new symbolic form. So the, the ritual actually um, gives way to uh, deterritorialization and re-territorialization. I don't know if that example can give you something really simple to think about, because it's the same thing that Doug just said, but in a really like material, real, uh, simple uh, situation. So does, so does that mean that uh, deterritorial, okay, I don't know how to say it, but um, means it always needs to have a link with uh, capital or can it be uh, other things that can be deterritorialized? It, it would be anything because it's a rhizomatic connection. It's a, it's a connection between two things. So it could be cap, uh, capitalism, it could be the institution of marriage, for example, the family. Um, so it can be anything. Oh, yeah. Other questions. I see other people's mics going off in the discussion. Maybe there's some shy folks out there who want to venture in. Um, also, uh, a lot of men in the discussion, I imagine. Uh, we, we could have some more non-men in here. We have some. Uh, feel free to speak up. We have some questions coming in the, the chat now, uh, in the discussion chat live. It seems like we're about to wrap up. Now there's just a whole bunch of people typing, but we'll get to these questions. We'll let it go a little bit longer. Is Kent still around? Oh, he's there. 
Okay. Yeah, we haven't heard from Kent in a while. I don't know. Um, I I was going to ask you, Kent. You said something at the end, and and I wanted a reference, and I can't remember what was one of the last things that you. There, there, I have no idea, but it, but it, let me mention something, which is, uh, you know, I put a, a reference in the uh, in the chat uh, the, to uh, Badiou's book on um, uh, um, on Deleuze, and uh, and the and the whole idea of uh, uh, everything being multiple. Mm -hmm. So uh, Badiou crit critiques. Uh, uh, Deleuze for his um, his idea of uh, uh, univocality, saying yeah. that his he he's talking about heterogeneity, but he believes that that being is one thing, and that that whenever you speak of being, you're speaking of the same thing, kind of the way Aristotle talks about it. And he says that 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 heterogeneity that uh, Deleuze is uh, uh, talking about is not radical enough, and 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 one of the main things in his uh, in Badiou's uh, theory is to have have a more radical kind of heterogeneity or multiplicity than than Badiou, but but I mean than Deleuze, but but Deleuze is the one you know who who put this idea out here that the multiple is prior to the arising of the one and the many. Yeah, which is a, a concept that Badiou has taken up and made part of his being in the event. Mm. So I just I just wanted to mention that because I, I think in this chapter, the the concept of multiplicity is a very important concept that's in the background that he mentions right at the beginning. I'm, I'm curious uh, if you're able to answer why uh, Badiou thought his concept of multiplicity wasn't radical enough. Are there any details that we can grab onto? Okay, so so both but you and Zizek are trying to forget Derrida and Deleuze. Yeah, but they've ac they've actually written both of them have written books against Deleuze. Right. So there's and this good there's this good interface there between Zizek and Badiou and the philosophy of Badiou, which which doesn't exist quite so much for. Their critique of of Derrida, it's more implied critique. Um, but but you know, as with you know, there's this guy Harold Bloom, and he talks about the anxiety of influence and the maps of misreading. And so that's to me that's what's going on here in this relationship between Zizek and Badiou with Deleuze and and Derrida. They're trying to they take so much from them, but they want to you know, forget them so that, you know, and they, they don't want to, they don't want people to see how much of what they're talking about comes directly from, from uh, Derrida and Deleuze. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting because uh, I actually haven't read the book on, on Deleuze yet. I'm probably going to do that very soon, but um, I, I tend to think that Zizek sometimes struggle with the specter of Deleuze and you can kind of hear it when he's edging on 
some of the territory which um, Deleuze and Gattari carve out, particularly in this book. And it's interesting when he does mention Deleuze, sometimes you'll hear him mention Deleuze following you know, an idea that he's developed or um, a line of thinking that he's developed that seems to resonate with their philosophy, Deleuze and Gattari's philosophy. And he'll dismiss, he's like, oh, we can talk about this as Deleuzean poetry and that sort of thing. And, and I often think how the word poetry to describe not only Deleuze's thought, um, but also continental philosophy in general has been deployed as this kind of ad hominem attack on it. And I'm thinking of like Carnap's attack on Heidegger here. And it's interesting because one of the things that Jay Conway, my professor, points out in his book on Deleuze is, is that in many of these cases, the notion of poetry is not defined. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's interesting because I have seen um, certain scholars, well, like one of my former professors, Charles Scott from Penn State, he actually goes into like, here's what Heidegger means by poetics. And he gets down to it. And to me, it's thoroughly philosophical, well-argued, well-developed. And uh, I tend to, uh, I love Zizek, but like I tend, he tends to lose me when he sort of invokes that characterization of Deleuze. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. Well, it looks like we're past uh, two uh, fifteen or so. Yeah, we definitely uh, we'll, are. Yeah, we'll end the. Let me see. Can I do it right here? Bam. We'll we'll have Craig Bot just get dropped off, and then um, we'll leave the chat open for a little bit in case anybody wants to talk. Um, I think I'm just going to go to the admin chat for a little bit. But for next week, we are doing psychoanalysis in the Holy Family. What uh, time? Next, right. The chats, please. So it'll be Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. So basically this time, but two hours prior. Give ourselves a round of applause. Yay! Yeah, we did it. Very interesting, guys. I, I loved it. I, can, I cannot applause because I'm pushed to talk. I only have one hand. <laughs> oh, that's what you're doing with your other hand. Okay. Uh, <laughs> All right. We'll see you guys and uh, we'll see you next week or even on Saturday. All right. See you.